God is rewarding you. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Being good. The Social Psycho Confabulation with Ben and Mr. A. Oh my god. Our setup is very professional because we are using 20-year-old equipment and knives to cut holes into electronics. <laughs> oh, I did do that, yes. Yes, yeah. I had to use a knife to cut this in my headphone. Because it was uh, the hole wasn't big enough for <laughs> the all the auxiliary cable. cords. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> but anyways, so I've seen this meme a million times in my life, or some variation of it, since I was yet just a small lad. When he but was it... a young warthog. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Thanks. It was basically like I don't no care. respect. It's like <laughs> just leave it in. It's very natural. Uh, yes, listen to the natural ambiance of the background. It's because nothing's in order. This is a little early for things to be in any order everyone's used to a little bit more happening at this time there's literally raw meat in a pan in my kitchen that i started cooking i was like wait we're doing a podcast so i just turned oh it off it's God. like half cooked um no okay here we go so the <laughs> the meme thing it's it'll have like a series of dates you know it'll be like 1960s 1970s 1980s 1990s and then like now basically and it's like you know, for the first one is like we're gonna run out of oil. Uh, the we're gonna go into a global ice age. Uh, the ozone will be completely gone, and every one of them has like a ten year prediction. You know, like ten years there'll be no more oil left. Ten years we'll be in an ice age, and everyone will be dead. Ten years, global warming will have killed us all. Ten years, and all of them are wrong. Like none of them ever came true. We don't even talk about them anymore. All the scientists that agreed about all of those things, each of those points, which was like a consensus that the whole world got on board with. And we all believed it together because the science, oh my God. the consensus. And now it's like they literally believe the opposite of what they believed 20 years ago. The full, complete and total 180 we're going into a full-fledged ice age where everything is going to freeze to death and die. And now we're going into a full-fledged heat, you know, heat age. wave. Yeah, the hot age where <laughs> we're all going to burn off the face of the planet and everything will be underwater. And I can just guarantee you that in another 10, 20 years, this will be bullshit too. It'll be and a I new just crisis. Don't know, I don't know why... For some reason, it's just hitting me really strangely at the moment or when I saw it. And still, mm. like, I'm like, that's so profound. You know, sometimes right when you wake up, maybe mm. your brain's in a little different state and you're just like mm, a little yeah. more calm. There's not as much noise. You haven't been exposed to a thousand ideas yet. 
I'm a little bit better rested than usual, as you can tell. I don't sound like I'm dying and suffocating. And uh, probably because I didn't overindulge or whatever yesterday. <laughs> um, God is rewarding you. <laughs> don't good. say that. Something will happen. Um, yeah, but I'm like, wow, that's if you in it, with a quiet mind, if you just have that information and it's not even like information that I'm being given like it can't be misinformation because I was alive during some of it. Yeah. You know, and it's like what what do people have to say about that? And they have nothing to say about it. Well, what is it? It's like trying to uh, discern the false prophets from the true prophets or whatever. Uh but the true prop like nobody like 99 what is it? Like 97 or 99% of all scientists agree that the world is going to die in a hot catastrophe really really soon yeah which extremely soon it is weird just like a a figure like that because it's like you're already establishing a class of people that's scientists you know like all the scientists like only certain people can weigh in on this and they're the people that we've identified as scientists, which means probably that they have a license that they haven't been doxxed by, you know, certain people. They haven't been canceled for their they opinions. Just, they haven't <laughs> said they just haven't said the opposite or like they haven't gone. I don't think so. Right. You're not a like scientist a, if you don't yeah. think so. So it's like yeah. <laughs> it's a whole confusing <laughs> statistic where you're like, wait, but all the scientists are only the people who agree with you because by your own rule, you're like people who don't agree with this aren't scientists. So like, it makes me wonder. It's like, certainly some of the people who were scientists, presumably you don't like lose your science credential just over time for no reason. Aren't some of those people still, alive like aren't the the people who said there's gonna be no of, oil or whatever are still alive yeah yeah or like the 99 percent of scientists that said that we we're absolutely in 10 years going to be in a global ice age like aren't what happened to those scientists how all like i don't know anyways not important good morning everybody <laughs> good morning <laughs> yeah i don't know man i cannot square the weather facts the circle. because I cannot square the circle. Um, no, because I have heard so much confusing information about that because if you look at the the weather charts, whatever the hell they are, where they show the global temperature plotted over time and then they're like, look how precipitously inclining it is. I'm like, sure. But then... I always look at it and some people have done this where you can like zoom way out and you're like, but if you zoom way out, it doesn't look that crazy. Like it just, it looks crazy at the very local portion of the graph. Like if you look over the last 10 or 50 years, but then in all of Earth's history, there's so much variability in the temperature that it's hard to say and they that don't, like this they is don't a spe know. specific moment. Yeah. They don't know what the temperature was. And they don't know. We don't know exactly. We can't even date that far back. Um, they're, of course, they're, wrong they're getting all better. The time. And they're wrong. So there's that. And then also, I've heard about the Ice Age stuff because that was another 
And people still talk about that, that like actually maybe the Earth is in like a mini cooling period or something. So I don't know how to square all these things. I think that's like well established. Like we are literally on the tail end of an ice age. Yeah. Like we're warming back up. And it's like, so of course the globe is warming. Thank God. Like a lot of it is covered in ice. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Like, oh my God. It's going to be of which, fine. <laughs> did you ever listen to that Joe Rogan episode? He had some guy on there who was talking about map making. This is so fascinating to me. There's like this guy who said he studied all these historical maps. And he was like, it's like we forgot about Antarctica. Like people used to know about it because it's on really old maps. And then at some point it got taken off maps and then it got put back on later, like when we rediscovered Antarctica. And oh, he's yeah. like, isn't that weird? I think there's, I, oh, Ben, oh God, it's too early for this. Oh God. I think that I am, I do not know <clears throat> what shape the earth is, but if it's round, I'm fine with that. If it's flat, I'm fine with that. I do not even care. I, it's like, <laughs> I don't even care. It's one of those things where I'm like, it's it's probably round, okay? It doesn't matter, but the whatever like the the what would you call it? Like the in whatever vein that kind of skepticism is in, mm. I buy that because I think that when you consider that like everyone in the country could fit into Texas with room to spare if that's true, then we need to calm down about all this crying everyone's doing about everything. It's possible, too, that the world is much smaller than we've been told. And I'm fine with that. It's also possible, like, I think they just discovered, we could check this probably on Google because I think it was very recently. I think they just discovered... Like, it would be big news if they discovered, like, one island or something. You know, some, like, oh, my God, an island. But I think they discovered, like, 270 islands or maybe, like, 27,000. I mean, some amazing amount of islands, like, near Japan or something. Like, oh, shit, there's a bunch of islands we just found. And it's like, really? That's so interesting because you're so certain that you basically know everything. Yet... We just discovered some inordinate amount of oh my land god! Mass. Wow, How you're many right. Was it? CNN was it? travel. Japan just found seven thousand islands it didn't know it oh had. Oh my! See, give me a break. They don't know. To quote the chick from Art Ozark, they don't know shit about fuck. Oh my god! <laughs> like, what? That's just the headline. I don't know what is going on. This is crazy. Anyway. Yeah, no, I've thought about that recently because I was like, you know, I don't know why I thought about this, but you just imagine that the government has like satellite technology and that they're like have pictures and images of everything and we can figure out what's under the ground. Yeah, like we know where like everything is and we can use Google Earth satellites to zoom in on everyone and at any time. Uh, But then you're like, but also not because how did we discover 7,000 islands? So... Yeah. 
And how do we discover yeah, all these ancient ruins that we never knew about in caves? You know, you'd think like, surely someone's like done the like radar mapping or whatever and been like, there's no caves over here. But, you know, if you're interested in caves like I am, apparently, <laughs> you think about that. Anyway, we don't have to stick on this topic. I have a couple other interesting thoughts. Yes, and they are. I don't know if you brought things. Um, no, I just brought a moderately well-rested brain. Wow, I just looked at that CNN article, by the way, and it's like a paragraph. Yeah. That's all they have to say. They're <laughs> like, know, we found like... 7,000 islands. There's nothing there. Yeah, I don't know what that was about. Um... Okay, well, here, I'll just start sharing some fun facts. So something I learned yesterday, Maria Konnikovich, she's like a psychologist um, Sound, I've person. I've heard the name. Yeah, I think, who I don't know who this woman is. She has a TED Talk. You can look her up. But uh, she was giving this TED Talk, and she said something interesting where she was, like, talking about trust. And she said, if you give people evaluations of your character and sort of your virtues. And so you give it to yourself, like a self-eval, and then you give the same survey to people you know well, like your friends or your partner or whoever, your parents maybe. Um, who do you think gives the better eval? Of Like more positive your of your character, yeah. Oh, just so not more accurate, just more positive? Yeah. So do I, like, what are the options? Do I just add up anybody in the you world? You or the person who knows you well? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, it's a tough one. It's really stumping it Mr. Is. A. <laughs> well, because here's what, what I'm, the way I'm thinking about it is I'm like, have you ever, I you know, you take one of those, uh, like, personality tests or something like that. And every time I take it, I'm like, do I do this? Hey. You know, I'll like ask him, I'm like, am I like this or am I like that? And she's like, just answer the question. Just answer the question, sir. Pro, pro, I don't know if they're more accurate, but I would say probably people who, not me. Okay. So it actually is you, which is interesting. So hmm. she said, um, you will be more glowing about yourself. And then she said something also interesting. Um that uh so you are like more uh believing in yourself perhaps to like a fault and then she was like the only people that this doesn't hold for and maybe this will be revealing about you uh <laughs> she said people who have depression she's like see the world as it really is and they really see and take account of their faults <laughs> and okay. so i there thought that go. was so funny <laughs> and so she was saying like this is the power of hope and she's like and people who you live a little bit in self-delusion like you think you're a little better than you are but she's like but that's really useful and so she's like, the people who are depressed actually see things as they are, and that's not a good state to be in. And I thought that was just a fun, interesting finding. Yeah, there's that theory, uh, depressive realism, I think is what it's called. Oh, And it's like okay. this idea that, um, I don't know how it's, I was, it was, I learned about it in like a, one of my psychology courses, and I was like, I think I asked a question that prompted the discussion about that. I don't think we were going into that. And I was like, well, what if 
things just suck or something, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, well, like that. <laughs> but I if mean, it's like, actually ha, ha, just bad. Yeah. And he was like, well, that would be depressive realism. And um, <laughs> that's an, that's a theory. Uh, but the problem is, I think it's like maybe not helpful a lot of times, but there is like therapeutic approaches, I guess, that hmm. look that, you know, will work with that. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, Isn't it? Yeah. It's cause... interesting, too, that she would say that it is a more realistic. I believe that, too. But I think that there's something interesting about that, you know, like, you know, there's something kind of interesting about thinking about it that way. Yeah, well, there's definitely some sort of societal advantage to having people in your society who can see things as they are. And so you could say, like, maybe depression is bad for the individual. But I think in some way, it's also good for the collective to have that sort of gut check of, like, you know, forcing you to deal with the reality of things as well. Um, maybe it's one way to see it. It's interesting. Anyway. We all learn about those that tribe that, uh, or at least I I feel like I heard about it in like multiple times throughout my life, probably mostly in college. But there's the, I don't know which tribe it is, like the Bushmen or something in some place. The Bushmen. And they, so when they come back with like a kill, like a, of like for like, you know, food, everybody like insults them. What? Yeah. So they're like, let me see. Everybody insults a, them. Yeah, it's um let me click on I don't need images now, I need Oh my god. Bushman Oh there it is. Wow. Insulting the meat. Some hunter gatherer tribes follow the practice of insulting the meat. Hmm. Okay. In in Zhu Han society. Basically, they come back with a kill or something, and when a young man kills much meat, <laughs> he comes to think of himself as a chief or a big man and thinks of the rest of us as his servants or inferior. We can't accept this, <laughs> so we always speak of his meat as worthless. Oh, my God. This way, we cool his heart and make him gentle. Yeah, so... It's like this kind of corrective mechanism on getting a fat head, basically. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Is exactly. that related? I don't know. I well, it's kind of like so much. I like lost what I. The depressives are maybe a, a corrective mechanism <laughs> against the overly hopeful mania people. Maybe. <laughs> well, you know, we we might have that like a, a that. Ooh. Uh, you know, as it, like a part of our culture is so. Like, overly optimistic from, i do think about this a lot like toxic positivity well from the time we're born like disney and every children's show it's all either like it used to be a lot of princess warrior programming but also like you know you can do anything you set your mind to you know your imagination knows no bounds and with this like relentless optimism and th and kind of assuming that you can do anything you set your mind to is uh, very, like, reminiscent, I think, of, like, the Tower of Babel kind of story. You know, like, you can do a lot, you know. Mm, and reaching we have the that, heavens. Like, it, yeah, there's, I mean, the things that, 
humanity has accomplished is extraordinary. I mean, even such things as like the air conditioner. Mm. I think Florida has like a statue of the guy, obviously, because it's a big deal down there that like Thank invented goodness. the air conditioner. <laughs> For this man. Yeah. So, but beyond that, I mean, like our like computer technology, things like that. I mean, it's impressive. And if you like really deep dive into some of the things, it's like, it's kind of unfathomable. Like the, yeah. um, like micro processors or what do they call those things that they make in uh yeah are you talking about like, like the s- literally the width between the units is like a covid particle or whatever yeah they're <laughs> like so crazy. It, they're like it literally can't get any smaller because like we could barely even see them with electron microscopes now and it's like how i don't <laughs> how? understand how that's possible like who set their mind to this endeavor and made this possible it's unbelievable. It's really unbelievable. Yeah. No, it is. That um, brings me to another thought. These are just random observations I make. I write them down and I bring them to the pod. About cities. Um, I just thought it was interesting. We could do like a meditation on cities. I was doing a meditation on cities where I was like, you know, they've kind of got the best and the worst aspects of humanity in them. Because like... Cities are not great places to be, to be honest. Like, they're full of concrete and trash and... They stink. Homeless people, you know? Like, it, it's bad. Like, there's a lot of bad things going on. It's a crime. Um, well, and they're f- absolutely and utterly not... I mean, talk about sustainability. Like, you, they are fully reliant on uninhabited land. For all the food and yeah, you cannot grow food in a city like not that much. Like you have, it's it's some. It could possibly be somewhat of an abomination. It's very interesting. Yeah. So there's that, but then it's also juxtaposed against some of like the greatest things that society produces, um, because of all of the people being there. So one of the interesting things I think about cities is just because of the volume of people there, you end up getting like. Like, it's like a numbers game. You end up getting some of the most extraordinary people together. Um, So if you think, like, an extraordinary person is, like, one in a thousand or whatever, it's like, well, you get a bunch of people together, and then you get enough extraordinary people together that when those people start working together, it's, like, really crazy things can happen. And I was thinking about this in the context of, like, music, like, symphonies. Like, you don't ever hear great symphonies in rural areas. But that's partly because there's not enough people to have that many good musicians. Like, good musicians are kind of, like, rare, you know, like one in a thousand or whatever. And then the only place you can get enough to make a symphony is, like, uh, you know, in a city. And then you hear what symphonies, you know, do. Like, really great symphonies can produce amazing pieces of art. And so that's interesting. But then there's also, like, technological innovations that come out of cities and whatnot. And... Actually, I think uh, this is like the concept of Ayn Rand's Fountainhead. Um, She wrote a book called Fountainhead, which I think was actually like a long sort of meditation on this particular idea, which is that sort of like man's ego, like his search for, you know, developing new and better and, you know, whatnot, was the downfall of society, but also the source of like our greatest 
strength and progress. So there's like some sort of juxtaposition there that's kind of interesting. But yeah, I was just thinking about that. It's kind of interesting. What do you think? Well, I have, um, I was thinking about this recently because, I, oddly enough, I was uh, playing. Okay, well, let me start with the symphony. Sometimes a symphony is nice to some people. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to, this is a long arc. I'm going to try to tie it all together, this thought. Because I enjoy, maybe even more so than a symphony. Uh, a banjo mm, you know yeah and that's like a rural rudimentary kind of but there's something that happens so it's impressive when some rural redneck can play the shit out of a banjo and okay so then you maybe so here we have this little country town and a guy that is just really amazing at plays great banjo everybody thinks he's great makes great music uh some people hate the banjo that's fine but then you have so he's great and that music the style is cultivated let's say by those kinds of people that live in like appalachia those kind of places yeah and then you have some great man as you call them or or woman uh that stumbles upon this culture or whatever and he goes and he's an expert in music theory and music instruments he's savant like he says that sounds great i love that uh i don't talk like you dress like you work like you i have none of that culture but i like that banjo and i could even be so great that i can continue in the tradition and hold reverent your culture and its link to this form and style and then i will go and perfect it you know basically and becomes an even better banjo player in theory than the banjo player from the appalachian hills and that's interesting and i don't know what i think about that so this thought pattern came from so i was playing this uh video game recently mm. called uh dead space i just beat it the other day and congratulations right thank you thank you <laughs> i probably played on easy mode i don't know um it was really hard though even on easy i mean not that hard but it's pretty hard uh and the, the whole idea is that you are basically you you it's like a shooting game or whatever like kind of mm -hmm. but the story is important and you're a what they call like a repair technician or like a engineer of some kind so you're like you are flying through space or something because we're like mining asteroids and which will be happening soon probably right. yeah so, so they say yeah and so like civilization seems to be very space oriented and uh so you there's this like ship out there this mining ship with a problem you know they found some alien artifact yada 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 whatever but the ship they get there figure out what's going on and the ship is all in disarray and they need to fix it so you're the engineer you're running around you have to kill things but like your kind of tasks are like go fix this component go fix this thing now go oh, the inner the communication systems are down the engine blah blah thrusters all that stuff 
And it dawned on me right before I beat the game, I'm like, at least coming from where I live in the South, I'm like, you know, you're kind of just like a space redneck. Because you're like, oh, oh got to fix this ship up. You know, uh, it's got the thrusters are no good. I got to fix them. I could probably use that old, there's a piece on this other one. I can get off that and bring it over here and fix this up here. And that'll make it work good enough. You know what I mean? Uh, get me to the next so, galaxy. But then at the same time, so it kind of made me think, I'm like, because I used to work in a, uh, at this place that had a lot of uh, mechanics. It was like a, it was two companies that worked side by side and they interestingly hired kind of really different types of people, which I thought was interesting. So mm-hmm. the whole thing we did was it was the AMS vans, the adaptive mobility systems. I don't know. I think they're still around and they took these wheel, these uh, minivans and they would cut the floors out and make them handicap accessible, put like ramps and stuff in them. Um, and one side kind of did more of the sell sales sales and then the other sales. Wow. Wow, I really said that <laughs> in a strong Southern accent. Um, and the other side was more like the fabricating and did a lot of the engineering. So, like, mm. you can't just cut the... F- you could, I guess, but you really want to, like, engineer this well, you know? <laughs> oh my God. So, on the sales side, they still did a lot of mechanic work. But these guys were, like, usually very redneck, you know? But the engineer side had mechanics that were really great mechanics too. And like one of the best mechanics they had, and there was like two that were like really good. And they were like super nerdy. One was like Canadian or something, like had a strong accent, like French Canadian or something. Hmm. And Chris, I don't know if you remember him, his bald guy. And then there was this guy that was the son of the owner who was like not autistic, but like very, very bland personality. They sat behind a computer most of the time and like, Looked at like schematics and bolts, and so we got country so that was, folk in the sales team, and who in the engineering team? Just not in the sales team. They were still backroom shop guys. Oh, okay. But because so, some of them just needed that, you know, we did more of the engine stuff. They would do a lot of the other stuff. But like, if there was any problem after the second company, who was more of the sales side, encountered, they had their own mechanics, like a whole huge, huge shop, you know, to do everything. Mm. But that was just once it was in their hands. So both teams had this kind of thing. Um, and I don't know who was – who. so who was the better mechanic, you know? And I mm. – mm. it's a weird – I don't know. For some reason to me it's just interesting because I have this friend that I'm always talking to him, uh, asking him questions like how do you do this, how do you do that? And he'll tell me things that are like – I think I've talked about him before. Mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. like he can't spell words, you know. Like he he doesn't know the difference between sail, like a sail, to sell, to sail a boat. Like all those words are spelled the same mm-hmm, for him. Mm-hmm. It's all S E L L or S A L E. I, I don't know. He uses whatever <laughs> one it is. It's always the same when he texts me, and it always takes me a minute to understand what he's saying. I'm like. You could you could sail that for fifty thousand dollars, you know. I'm like sail it on the Pacific Ocean, but this guy can do anything with no education at all. Yeah, and it's really impressive. And I'm like, that's a kind of smart 
And so the question, I guess, one question is, does a guy like that benefit from some like formal training? You know, is is he really smart, but just has no education? Education, in fact, is a good thing that people like that can benefit from. And in the right circumstance, he could have been, you know, I don't know what well, exactly I'm saying, but yeah. I'm pointing out some kind of It gets of a little tricky because weird... I think it's like you, when you immediately you say that, I think we conjure up like our system of education. And I think that it's very broken, like it's not very effective. I mean, just hasn't produced at least recently like great results and just comparing our students and their success to other countries and whatnot. And then I think you talk to people and they're like, yeah, my education was useless or whatever. But I think in principle, education would just mean something like, you know, helping further develop a person's potential. So I think, yeah, in principle it should help like that person could achieve even more. Um, if they had like a tutor and a coach or someone to like, you know, leverage their interests and provide them opportunities to identify areas of growth for them and whatnot. And so I think that's the kind of, you know, mentoring relationship that everyone wants and would benefit from and needs in order to kind of develop and grow in your life. And it's interesting too, because we talk about a lot, um, me and Michael talk about this in terms of work and, uh, because there are just so few, like, actually good coaches in work. Um, and so you have your manager, and people get this so confused. But um, that was me stealing a phrase from you. Um, see, picking up little idioms. Well, well, wait, what was it? I don't even know. People get this so confused. Uh, do, I, do I say that a lot? I don't even yeah. know that. I don't know if you say it a lot, but you <laughs> have said it, and now I'm saying it. Um that's fun. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that's pe- fun. People get this so confused and they they think that like managers are like, like every manager is just doing project management or something where they're like just organizing the work, which is a managerial function. But like your manager, I think the most important thing that they're doing is actually being a coach to you and helping you develop in your profession or whatever. So that means they should be more knowledgeable about your craft, whatever it is, than you are, and helping you learn more about it, helping you to do it more effectively, better, you know, contribute to a team, whatever it is that you do. So I think uh, there's definitely something there that seems missing kind of in society at large, like not just education, but also in like our institutions, like, you know, corporate America and whatnot. Um, and we used to have it like a lot, like it used to be like apprenticeships, you know, like we used to have, that was like an institution. Everybody did apprenticeships and that was kind of like the way young men went out into the world. You know, they went and got a blacksmithing apprenticeship and then they studied under someone who had done it for, you know, their whole life or whatever. And then you had to do it for so long to even become capable. And you to still do, be there, called that, that is still true in some, um, some areas, you know, like I think truck truck drivers you know big rig drivers electricians uh yeah you know, I was a lot of those this... kinds of guys have to be apprenticed yeah until because you can learn it all but then in practice it's not you know you there's something to be developed you know right, as far right. as a skill you just have to you can't just like even driving like you suck at driving when you first start driving I mean until exactly, you start yeah. you, like you know how driving works like go stop 
turn the wheel, but until you feel it and do it and feel how, you know, you really don't, that's the only way to learn. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was watching, yeah, that's a good point because they do have it in different areas still in society. I was watching this traditional ink making. This is so random. But like, oh, I've seen this stuff. That stuff, those Japanese oh, guys. And yes, stuff. it's so crazy. Unbelievable. This solid ink that they make for calligraphy writing in Japanese. So expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they're they, like, here's the shitty one. Yeah. Here's the really good one. This one costs like fifty million dollars per yes. gram, and you're like, what? <laughs> it takes like seven years to make one ink bar, and it's, it's all by hand, and like, it's these artisans, and you have to study for years. Dude, that is something that is so cool. I'm not, I get it. Like, the whole of Japan is not like infatuated with that kind of link to their culture. But the fact that that kind of thing still exists on a scale that's like yeah. identifiable is really cool. Yeah. I don't know if we have much of that here. No, you we know, don't. It's but sad. we're not an old society either. We've only been yeah. around for a few generations, whereas those Asian cultures have been around, so they say, for thousands and thousands of years. Right. And they've just held those traditions, which is amazing. No, it is, yeah. It's kind of like living history because those uh, ink-making practices have been around for hundreds of years, they were saying. And, like, they still do it the same way that it used to be done. And there's something very, like, comforting about that. Like, I think people undervalue traditions and, like, whatnot like there's something cool about that like you know we still do it the way we used to do it like there's some link to our past and our present and our future and yeah back to the progress thing that I was saying you know cities being this fountainhead of progress and you know kind of wondering about that it is like progress at what cost maybe because you know things are changing things are getting better maybe but also we lose our traditions when we change too much. And maybe when we lose our traditions, we lose touch with the past. And, you know, that's a, I don't think we readily perceive like what kind of cost that is, like to lose touch with how things used to be done or something. Well, I think it, I think what it does, because we are so, this is a Jacques Ellul point that from that, the technological society, partially, that you know, you, everybody becomes, I don't even know if you could do a lot of what we do in a different way or as cheaply. That's the interesting right, thing. It's right. it's very like Henry Ford, I guess, in a way. It's like, you're the guy that turns the bolt. Like this bolt, you make sure that bolt's tight. Next guy's going to make sure the lug nuts and the wheels are tight. Next guy's going to, you know, this like kind of assembly line, you become proficient at like one thing to the extent that you don't know anything about the other stuff like nobody could make no one person could make the whole car yeah the whole thing yeah you know because there probably are people that could make a whole car but not expertly you know what i mean like there's a you well not with all the electronics today probably i mean for sure the electronics is a whole another level like that seems only possible in a highly developed Right, exactly. For lack of a better term. Which that was kind of the point I was making. It's like those things could never have been achieved without cities, you know, without bringing all these, you know, people together to like collaborate on something that no one person could achieve. And that was my point with the symphonies too. It's kind of Mm. like, you know, the banjo man might be a great musician, but he's not a community of great musicians that are like playing something that's better than any one individual could sort of perform. Like the power of hearing, I think, 
you know, 80 people on stage, like playing in synchrony is just overpowering, I think. Like, it's not that it's just like, because you can critique like the type of music or whatever, the type of creations. But I think it's just the fact that like, so many people are doing it something together in synchrony well, at a yeah. high level of proficiency. Yeah. And the guy that plays the banjo probably during the day plows the field, whereas right. the guy that plays in the symphony, when he's not playing in the symphony, is playing, he's obsessive about the thing that he does. You know, there's yeah. always, can I play faster? Can I play truer? Can I play better? Can I play on be a better time? You know, just like constantly, that's all this person does. Mm. And there is something about that that I think is kind of wonderful, you know, the community aspect of the fact that you can have a guy that even even in a rural setting, you you probably have a guy that knows how to work on tractors better and faster than anybody else. Everybody, mm. but there's not as many guys, and he doesn't get as paid as much as like a tractor mechanic in the city. Because diesel mechanics make a bunch of money. But yeah. of course, they would make a bunch of money, but only really in a city where when I work on a diesel engine, it's for a truck that's hauling $2 million worth of Amazon inventory. And Amazon needs that truck. Op the, the cost of not having that truck operating is large. Interesting, though, it's not grave. This is an interesting phenomenon. It's not as grave as the farmer not having his tractor because he'll have he will have nothing but he can't afford the diesel mechanic from new york city because you know what i mean like amazon can stand to lose a, a, a shipment it's not mm -hmm. great for them but the cost is theoretically and somewhat actually not really as dire as the guy who's like rural mm. um Interesting. So the, yeah. The dynamics of oh, the mm. of that kind of a I mean, it's something interesting about that kind of dynamic, I think. Yes, I think yeah, people well that points to like the situational value of things, like the subjective, the truly subjective value of things. Um because you could have the same, you know, situation or the same goods being shipped or the same, you know, uh engine repair. And in one situation, the cost of that is very high. In another situation, not so much. Um, and partly it depends on, yeah, what's going on. And so, like, for that farmer, that thing, you know, that shipment not going out could be everything or whatever for him. Um, versus, like, Amazon at scale can afford to right. lose it or whatever. It's and they, And it steals away the good mechanics. You know, you have, like, talent scouts or whatever that are, like, hunting these geniuses out you know and one of the best this is a little bit of a side note but one of the best uh essays that when i read it i'm always blown away and it's called i think it was written by milton friedman or von mises or something and it's the essay called i pencil have you ever read that no, but you've told me about it. But yeah, inform us all. So like a pencil costs like, I mean, what does one pencil cost? You know, like not even a penny, a, who knows? A, a cent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like not much. Um, But the 
it's there's different ways to kind of think about it. One way is to think about how is the pencil, how is it so cheap? Because it's not simple. You know, there's the same company is not generally like smelting the metal and manufacturing the little ring that holds the eraser on. The company that builds the fabricates the eraser is not sourcing the rubber from the rubber trees that's another company and the wood and whoever makes the paint and the etching and the lead all of those have myriad of moving parts within what we could call like some kind of economy right right that is huge and robust and distributed and they all come together eventually and they make this one cent pencil and then there's a company that sells the pencils and actually makes a profit on these pencils that took if you think step back for a moment incredible amounts of technology and contributions means, from people and different areas and, investment, and places yeah it's unbelievable so you, i like that i mean that's there's something just kind of crazy about that but i think that even functioned in a more frontier like society you know so you because you did have like if you wanted to make a pencil in the 1700s you'd still have the disparate you know you'd go i need i'd I'd these erasers it'd be great if it was just attached to this thing i'm using to write with and then you go to the blacksmith and you go look i have this little thing and this is how i get the pencil off the paper and i have this pencil and this is how i get the stuff on the paper and i always have to have both of these things but it seems simple enough that you could just make me something that holds the pencil and the eraser together do you could you make something like that and if you just pick up a pencil and look at it how it's done it's interesting you know it's just a ring and then it's got like someone's just punched dents in it and those dents stick into the pencil and then a dents on the round the top of the ring hold the eraser in that ring it's super simple right right but you'd still need the blacksmith but maybe and the, the eraser guy and the pencil guy, you know, and you probably have some merchant dude or some guy that's like, I have an idea. I'm going to make a pencil with the eraser attached to it. And then he goes around and talks to all these people and goes, and then you understand how it can be so cheap. You know, you go, the blacksmith is like, what do you want? That's like a, a microgram of metal. I mean, I guess I could make that. It's kind of nothing you go well i want i guess i need like five hundred thousand of these things (laughs) we need to ramp this up (laughs) this is where you get investments (laughs) and angel investors you know it's like i need a lot i mean i'm going to take these things around the world everyone's going to have one of these he goes okay i guess it'll be worth it then i'll make you some rings and then you go to the guy that makes the pencils and you're like look i get it like a pencil's a dollar what if i get like five hundred thousand pencils like what you know, all at one time. You get a paycheck today, but like, you got to cut me a deal. You know, oh my god, goes, okay, I could do it for a penny. That's fine. You know, Can and you get it's like, talk you know about what I mean? That, all. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. That's weird thinking, though. That like, not the pencil thing. I think that I was gonna say that emerges naturally, and you can see how yeah, people would just get together and be like, what about this? And like, you know, iterating and you know cultivating complex relationships and products and whatnot. It's the it is, and it's the relationship that makes it's the the relationship it's that guy right right we're not going to put this in the podcast but i'm going to say it it's that comes along (laughs) leave it and he's like (laughs) (laughs) and he's like i've got an idea 
And uh, I don't know why he's from New York already, but he's going to figure out. He's like these early bean counter types. You, what are those people? People call it industrious thinking. And a lot of really, really, really rich people, especially in today's era where everything is complicated, nothing that some like nothing that Elon Musk did was by done by. This is this teeters along a very interesting line of thinking that I disagree with, but nothing that Elon Musk does is purely Elon Musk. You know, it's such a, because everything is all this technology. And now that at that level, it becomes so unbelievably complicated. Right. Right. But he, and he doesn't, he has to know a little bit about a lot or a, a decent amount about an unbelievable amount. Yeah. But that's how today's millionaires are made. A lot of times, you know, if you're going to come, if you're going to be like an inventor, you know, you have an idea and the idea is predicated on things that came before it. But there's a way of thinking about this that I disagree with. Where like, so the entrepreneur, what did uh, Obama's famous ridiculous quote? I think I think this is his quote. Was something like, "If you own a business, you didn't make that." What? Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. I'm a hundred percent positive. But that's crazy. That's a weird quote. I was saying though, yeah, I think you're about to go there. That uh, that kind of thinking of like, I need to take this everywhere we need to mass produce these pencils i need five hundred thousand of these rings that kind of thinking is a little different than just the relationships and complexity of society it's like and that is a weird thinking because i was thinking about that a little bit because of the podcast and i'm the person on our podcasting team of two people that publishes the podcast and can see the metrics and I'm like, we need to grow the podcast so we have more audience members. And I noticed this interesting tension there. Oh, yeah, go on. Well, I just noticed this interesting tension where I'm like, I can see myself easily get pulled into this, like, we need to grow the podcast, make it as big as possible, get as many listeners as possible, like, go mass market with the podcast. And then just like, but then I find myself questioning too, like, wait, what? Like, that doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter if... I have five listeners or five million listeners. It's like, is that? But at a certain point, it does, you know, because if it becomes, you know, so the, I heard this Jordan Peterson was interviewing this guy recently, and the guy said, so they were kind of one of the angles because Jordan Peterson can't help himself was to talk about like, because this is not what the guy was talking about fully. I mean, there's an aspect of it, and Jordan Peterson was pulling on that thread really hard. The guy kept going, these are hard questions. <laughs> Peterson is just <laughs> like, well, what about? Questions. Yeah. And the one of the things that he said is, because they were talking about like the neo-Marxist kind of criticism of colonialism or whatever, whatever, mm. which comes from, it has like this root in like profit. You know, there's a way of thinking about their that argument from those neo-Marxist, neoliberal, or not, uh, not neoliberal, uh, uh, neo-Marxist is probably the right word something like that where, where it's like uh, like p- the profit motive in capitalism is evil mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the guy was like basically saying there's nothing actually everybody wants to profit Yeah, everybody wants everybody wants power this is what he was saying if you don't have power you can't do anything everyone has some level power there may be disparities 
But of course there are, and you want there to be in a way. You want to profit, you want to power, but is there a separation between greed? And so I, I they were, he's a religious type scholar. So I was thinking of it as I was listening in like a religious context. And I'm like, yeah, okay, well, what about God? You know, he, that's his whole thing. Like is God, how could this God that this guy believes in think you shouldn't have, no, you could, can't profit. No, just live in squalor and suffer Mm. and have nothing like that's Mm. our absurd, you know, like you do want to profit. And so, but I think a lot of us, especially those who aren't on the top, I think they do think about, they tend to like, I don't know what the psychology behind this is like a, maybe it's like a justification for why it's okay. Cause I think I do this, that I'm not like rich off of my endeavors. Mm. And it's like, well, because that motive is like sick anyways. And I'm, you know, trying to like be really, you know, cool, man. I'm doing my own not thing. Not I'll never like sell out. Like, I won't sell yeah. out. Man. And I think there is a level of like, not, I think that's relevant. Yes. It's not completely, um, you know, just self uh, defensive reasoning or whatever. Yes. But, oh shit, I've lost, I've lost my, my point. Well, maybe you'll come back to it. I was going to say there is a difference though, between the extreme and the normal, because I think what I'm criticizing mostly is like the extreme, like looking at someone like Jeff Bezos. I was reading this article this morning where Jeff Bezos apparently has a yacht and a separate toy yacht that has things like submarines and helicopters on it. And I'm like, Okay, do I don't toy? know. Like just for fun? Yeah, it has toys. Toys like submarines. Like they're calling submarines toys for rich people oh, now. Oh, see, when you said toy submarine, I'm like, like it's this big and I can just go, <laughs> No, no. We're talking about actual submarines. Okay. So there's a level of that that I'm like, this definitely does corrupt you, but I don't think profit is evil. And I think people do get that twisted. Like they ready to throw out the baby with the bathwater with that sort of thinking. Because but Jeff what Bezos is, is evil. He's definitely, yeah, seemingly evil. But uh, we canceled our Amazon subscription after the pandemic because during the pandemic, there's, let me make two points. Here's the first one. Here we go. Jeff Bezos, this is Jeff Bezos's company, Amazon, <laughs> made record-breaking profits during the pandemic and apparently to celebrate that they increased the amazon prime membership cost yet again that's disgusting on its face and it's not i'm trying to imagine the criticisms that i'll get for this well go ahead you'll give them to me and then i'll defeat them to be fair okay one I don't know if he was still the CEO when that happened because he's not the CEO anymore. I think Andrew Jassy is the CEO now. Um, But he has power. He could come out and say he could make a public statement, which may be illegal to make the statement another problem. But to go, hey, Amazon's raising its uh, Amazon Prime membership after record-breaking profits that they could sail on for the next 10 years. Um, They're making it $150 now to benefit from what free shipping in in two days uh that's that's disgusting he could say that yeah well then why would he so the second thing though is that uh apparently the business 
so that you think about the shipping and logistics business, they have like the Amazon Prime stuff. That's actually still not profitable, I'm pretty sure. Like all the profit in the company of actually comes from not. the AWS server part of the business. Which nobody interacts with, which everybody interacts with, but no one even, it's nothing tangible about Amazon. It's literally just server space. Right. Like most people don't even know probably that they even do that, you know, I maybe not most, but yeah. Yes. So if this is an argument, I think that's, I've mentioned this a million times and I will continue to mention it. It's the Walmart method. Right. Come right, in right. with an unprofitable business model yes. that only works if you're a pseudo monopoly. Fuck everybody else. Get a bunch of investors to float you for years. Until you, yeah. For years and years and years while everyone invested is getting richer and richer somehow because in the hopes that one day, literally, you will crush enough of your quote-unquote competition who are profitable, not obscenely profitable, but profitable, operate under that auspice until the day that you corner the market. And then to become Mark now, now I can raise my prices over and over and over. But the whole purpose, the whole reason anybody switched in the first place was because the prices were so good that you'd say, you know what, screw the McCluskey's tool shop down the road. For some reason, their really high quality pipe wrench is $90. But for some reason on Amazon, I can get it for $50. Yeah. And that's yeah. just on, I just cannot pass up that deal. I just cannot justify. But then, lo and behold, they go out of business. Everyone around that's doing these industrious activities goes out of business. And then, next thing you know, that wrench is $120 for, at Amazon. Right. Because, right. because I guess, fuck you. Well, then you, yeah, because you just it was start never... leveraging your monopoly status to yeah raise prices on people. Like, kind of, I yeah, think that's the criticism you're making, yeah. And people assume that corporations have some kind of a, a soul or a personality or something, but they just don't. The only, I will give this to Walmart. A lot of times their stuff is shit. You know, it's just garbage. Well, about sometimes. the soul part, Sometimes it's not. I'll agree with you on the mass corporations. I don't think all corporations, like small businesses are not like that. I think small businesses can have a soul, so to speak. But at the extremes, yes. An ethos that you have to stick by it. The whole purpose, the whole thing about Amazon was like the same price or better that actually originally it was better prices basically guaranteed. I tried, I Googled the other day and I got Amazon gave me an answer even though I was Googling it, but it gave me a Google, uh, Amazon page. And I said, does Amazon price match Walmart? Because I found an item at Walmart for cheaper, the same exact item is cheaper at Walmart. And Amazon has this page about their price matching policy, it says no. They don't price match. Why? Because their price is always better. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I, I was like, what? It's literally not better. I would not be Googling this. We just said if the it price and was that's better. how it is. Like, no, we don't do that because our prices are better. Amazon is constantly making sure that we have the lowest price. Yeah. that's That literally must just be a lie. I have no idea what to do with that information 
Oh my god. Uh, the bureaucrats you, sit around and they decide what the lowest price is and yeah, dear god. But yes, no, I totally agree with you on the extremes. Um, there's definitely something wrong. And that's what I was kind of pointing out with the podcast. So, you know, do you need to grow it forever and whatever? And it's not that like growing the podcast is wrong inherently, but I think you can get swept away by that motive. Like that can become the most important thing to you where it's just growing the, th the business or the podcast or whatever. And then you forget, like, why was I doing this in the first place? Why did I care about this? Why was this worth my time, you know? And if we did what industry does, whether it's the academic, apparently this field, they now just term as science, which isn't a field, it's a method, but now it's a noun. Or global corporations or all this stuff. If we were like that, what we would do to grow that is we would start advertising and telling people we are the best podcast on the internet. We, would we just have say it. Yeah. We everything is everything we say is true. Um you know, we would just start making Shit ridiculous yeah. claims that we think that people want to hear. World's best Rather, podcast, number one podcast in society and culture on Amazon. Yes. <laughs> yes exactly. And uh Sam Tripley used to make a joke about this on his podcast. He would always say on his uh, Deep Waters podcast with this other comedian, Brian Callen, they like kind of sort of talk about conspiracies or whatever. And he would always say, we're the number one podcast, uh, conspiracy podcast by binary men. You know, it's like we just get so specific. Like, <laughs> yes, the, there's just exactly. no one else out there that like, actually has the description. <laughs> so we're the like, only one. We're so we're the... number one. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. You know, so... I think they're, yeah, I think that's a way of like kind of holding on to. Now, the other thing I was going to say is for some reason I have this written down. You must have spoken about managers. Oh, yes. I, I was getting back to apprenticeships and coaching. Yeah. So these managers, I think of them like this, and this is based on my experience purely. Managers <laughs> it would be weird are, if you said something else. This is based on my reading on the topic. Yeah, <laughs> this is based on... Quantum theory. Um, <laughs> managers are like head choppers that mm. are at that are at gunpoint. God. So, did you know that mom is retiring yes, immediately? I heard. Like we'll have to have her June, on the pod. Like, She'll have nothing better to do. Well, that this isn't going to last long. But. <laughs> oh my God. But so she she'll probably keep working, but she has to retire from this company, right? And it's like a multifaceted thing. So, but basically, very similar to kind of your situation in a way, but not quite. So she has this manager who, well, it, it's really similar. This is why it kind of goes along because they had the pandemic experience where their profits were record profits, right? And now they want everybody to take a voluntary uh, retirement package, which isn't even that great, but whatever. Because, and everyone assumes, and they probably assume rightly, that whoever's left afterwards is on the chopping block and potentially will lose their job anyways without a retirement package. Wait, what? I thought mom was doing it voluntarily. They actually said something about like... They didn't say anything, but this is what everybody thinks. Everybody thinks if you don't take halls. this, you're gone. Oh. You know, like or you're or the there's a there's a 
possibility that you'll be eliminated anyway. So you might as well take... So she has like this meeting with her manager who's basically saying, you know, your sales aren't as good. She's not a salesperson. She's a, a manager of salespeople. Right, right. And so she has a manager. She is a manager. And then she has all these salespeople. And it's like, well whose fault is it that the sales are no good because now mom has to have meetings about you know how sales aren't great so she gets hounded for the sales not being what they were in the middle of a fake pandemic that was a pure yeah. fabrication that is that a huge component of it was profiteering from all these companies the masks they're they're a huge that boom deals for like industry masks, in the pandemic yeah air filtration all this stuff there i mean that's their jam and of course that can't last forever and so this is like some bizarre business practice that i'll never understand we're in this infinite growth model that's like no matter the circumstances that causes a, a momentary boom or bubble that can never go away the growth. And to make sure that yeah. it doesn't, yeah, that we can't lose that jump. Right. We can never we have, have downward from, sales, yes. even quarter that's, over quarter. Yeah. So that's the new launching point is this new, and it's like, but how is that that's sustainable? That's the gun at it's, the head you were saying. Yeah. So ultimately, even though mom thinks that her manager is her friend, that's the person that's going to come chop your head off. Listen and up. Listen up. <laughs> I think in a way she knows this and I think that's I don't know if she'll she'd ever articulate it this way she th she'll say things like it's really too much stress for my age and I'm like no it's it's like the whole system the whole operating theory is deleterious to your psyche you know to be held to an essentially impossible standard there's a certain so she's got to, her salespeople have to push the customers. She has to push the salespeople. Her manager is going to push her to push her salespeople. And why is that dynamic happening? Because if you just keep going up and up and up, so what what are the options at a, this level of management? Well, you can start really really pushing your salespeople to do this uh, inhuman feat, or you can fire them. I don't care what you have to do, but you need to make the profits. And the sales look better, right? Because yeah. getting and swept so away, she's like left, just saying. So she's left there to either whip or chop heads, which she doesn't want to do. Because ultimately, what's the motivation? Well, listen, you've got a window of op of time, an opportunity here to fix this. If you don't, it's your head, right? And right. the reason it's your head is because if you don't, it's my head. Because there's somebody behind that, that her, the next manager up, that's like, listen, I don't know what's wrong with your manager of managers, but it's off with their head at a certain point if they don't maintain this impersonal profit. Right. And, yeah. and it's particularly bad in sales. Yeah. Sales is the worst. Yeah. Well, because, yeah, you don't have control over it, too. It's like, I mean, you can be doing all the same things from quarter to quarter, and, you know, sometimes the customer's needs change or whatever, and you don't do as much sales that, you know, cycle or whatever. 
And that's not of any fault of your own, but yet inside the business, it can feel very much like you're held accountable for this. And it's like, we didn't do anything, you know, and that's very And you can be better and, and worse. Yeah. You can be better or worse at sales and you could, you know, yeah. try harder. But there's also, to be honest, I've been in sales. You know who makes all the money? People who've been there for a long time. You know how that usually happens? They either get lucky and win a big account that they sit on and float around on a $100,000 a year's commission just on this one customer or people around them retire and get fired and those accounts have to go to somebody so they get doled out to the best salespeople. Here we're giving you the Amazon account. So, right. um, the legacy accounts with big orders that you just take a cut of, you know, 10% right. or whatever. Yeah. And you, and all you got to do is go, oh, what could I, you know, here's, a, here's a good salesperson. You just got to pick up the phone. They answer and take your Literally. order. <laughs> and then here, and here's how you become an exceptional salesperson. Don't do sales. Yeah. I mean, do it or don't. It can be whatever. good, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, there's definitely that profit motive gone too far. A couple of things I wanted to say. One I don't think, yeah, back to the profit mode and not being totally evil. You have to think about what profit is. And profit is the measure of a productive social relationship in principle. So how do, like, how is there ever profit? Like, where does the profit come from? You know, how could there be more left over after you've accounted for all the costs when you sell it? And what is that thing called? to economic zero or something isn't there a theory about that every uh the free market is always driving towards something zero like it's always new firms will enter the market until oh yes that's a perfect competition so in a perfectly zero yeah tell me yeah in a perfectly competitive market firms keep entering you know uh because there's profit to be made and that's why firms enter the market. And so because of that, in a perfectly competitive market at equilibrium, profits are driven basically to zero, but like not zero exactly. It would be like slightly above zero because if there's money to be made, someone should enter the market if it's perfectly competitive, which means no cost to entry. Anyone can enter the market. There's homogenous products. There's like conditions on what a perfectly competitive market is. And obviously that's just like theoretical because all markets are imperfect in some way and more, more so than, or some more so than others. Now, but profit back to the definition, it's like if you and I make an exchange, like it it costs you go back to the pencil, whatever it costs to make a pencil, like not a mass market, but you're just making me, you know, a handmade pencil or something. And it costs you $10 and maybe it costs you, you know, $10 plus the value of your time and whatever else and whatever you gave up that you could have done that you didn't do, that's the opportunity cost. Maybe, you know, we say the pencil costs you $20, but maybe you give it to me and I'm willing to pay you $25 for the pencil. And so that difference is like the difference in how much I valued it versus how much you valued it. And because I valued it more, it should change hands from you to me. And that creates social value. And that's profit. So I think people get confused about that concept. Which is a weird theory, by the way, because in a way, if I have 10 pencils, everything beyond like the first pencil deteriorates 
value-wise, extremely... Right, diminishing, yeah, returns. It's like, like, there's... To be honest, I'm in the business of pencils. I don't even use them. I, I write with pen. So... They are of no value to me, except for what I've invested in making them. Right, which is a little, yeah, when you think about it at scale, I think that does become a little bit of a stranger concept because I think locally just, you know, barter and trade kind of economies, it makes sense that things would trade hands and they would trade hands to people who value them more and away from people who value them less. But then if you think about like the hyper-capitalistic market, like mass production, what ends up happening is that you end up spending your time on something specific to the extent that that thing actually becomes worthless to you, you know, like, and is that what that is that, that may be the very thing that propels all innovation in in economy. It might be because as, as soon as there's a machine, I mean, not depends on the market, I guess you're right. I mean, cause there's a, the guy that I used to work for that made, made pallets. We made them by hand but there are companies out there who own these machines that just make them. But apparently, the market is there are such so many pallets that are needed that there's enough room for the guy <laughs> that also makes them by hand. God, you know, yeah. so he's not making them at the same profit level, and he's making good money. But the but the fact. The, the reason that the pallet machine was invented because somebody said there are so many people needing pallets that if I invest $20 million in a factory that makes pallets and I can produce a reliable stream of pallets, I will make my money back and I will eventually profit. Right, right. Yeah. And so therefore the innovation, the, the cost of innovating... Well... Yeah, is worth it. The central profit maximizer's question is how can I maximize the difference between how much I value this and how much someone else values this? And so the mm. investing in like the production of whatnot, that's like trying to minimize how much you value it. You're trying to make it worthless to you. You're doing it at such a scale that each one you could just throw it away. It doesn't even matter. You know, yeah, but then you're also no time. Yeah. On the other end, doing marketing, you're trying to make it as valuable to other people as possible. So you're trying to convince them, you know, like that's like that crazy marketing tech where you're like, now this is super special deluxe, you know, <laughs> like you're trying to maximize that delta between, you know, how much they think yeah. it's worth and how much you. Our pallets are pre- precision made by right. high tech machines and laser, you know, levelers. And, Organic yeah. wood and made by artisans and. <laughs> That's a different one. That's yeah. going to be a handmade one that costs quadruple. <laughs> yeah. But it was made by hand if you are into that kind of thing. And there are actually a market for all sorts of things. Like uh, some people, when we worked at the pallet place, they wanted pallets that look good. Oh, my God. And they, they, there was, they had two nice. types of... I did. I had sold these pallets to this company that they had uh, two types of pallets, warehouse pallets and shipping pallets. Mm. The warehouse pallets look like ogres made them oh my god like they were falling apart they were like brown mold was growing on them they don't give a shit it's just to move stuff around the, with a warehouse basically but then by the time that product is on the pallet and it's being shipped to a customer they want that wood to be yellow and pretty and clean and look brand new hmm. and so they would spend different monies on different pallet types so there is oh that's yeah, funny there's a market for everybody in some sense. Yeah. I was also going to say, so I was watching, I just finished this series on Netflix about work produced by 
I think it was Obama's production company or whatever. Obama, it's like he's the kind of interviewer in the series. Um, and oh, I found that quote too. I forgot, but yeah, go on. Oh, do you find the quote? Well, let's let's talk about that. The, I've got this. Tell us the quote. Were we right earlier? Here it is. If you were successful, somebody along lines gave you some help. There was a great teacher somewhere in your life. Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we have to allow you to thrive. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you've got a business, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. What? The internet didn't get invented on its own. <laughs> Government <laughs> research created the internet so that all the companies could make money out of the internet. Should I even go on? I've, I've already hit that. Wow, was the quote. it's you weird. I have mixed feelings about that quote. I'm like, on some level, yeah, it is. Like, we are all contributing and nothing is ever truly on someone's shoulders. But yeah. Uh, no, it's interesting. I think, yeah, I was watching that show that he did on work and, uh, well, Ooh, Obama? yeah, it's on Netflix, oh. but I thought it was actually pretty interesting. Um, you know, there's, you could critique it, but it's just, it shows real people in different stratas, uh, of society or whatever. So you, he goes from like the bottom to the top over the course of four or five episodes or whatever. And so he shows like, service workers in the first episode he's like this is the lowest rung of society he's like what most people don't realize is like most people in america are service workers and he's like and we think service jobs are like for people who are you know uh in between things or college students or whatever he's like but actually most americans like adults are working service jobs and then he goes up the strata all the way to like the ceo of like uh, some multinational corporation and uh it was interesting. I actually thought the CEO had interesting things to say. Like you might have thought he would have been really evil, um, but he was. What What was so the bad. company? It, was it like a big, big company or just like a? It was called Tata Group. It's like an Indian company that owns a lot of Indian infrastructure. So it's a little different too, because like I think Indians' culture is a little different than America. So they're a little more community, partly because they live together and it's like a closer knit society. So I think. Well, there was some of that yeah, going on a little there's bit. There's something the service industry is interesting. I mean, they want to get rid of like tipping and stuff, but that's crazy and nobody should want that because mm -hmm. sir, like right waiters and waitresses for example don't make any money, hardly at all, but they get 30% I mean sometimes they get they get 15 to 30% of the sales. Mm. In a way, you know what I mean cuz yeah. it's tacked on yeah. And that's so so there's some people who make great money. Serving. I mean, adequate money yeah. serving. Go to Atlanta and get a serving job at one of these fancy restaurants. I don't know what's down there anymore, but I used to know so like Global or whatever these Sure, there's a lot. Yeah. And I'm sure those people some of those people probably making at least $60,000 a year. Some of those people are making hundreds of dollars a day. Yeah. Yeah. Hundreds no, of dollars true. a day. Yeah. I don't think tipping is so bad. I think uh, what people are, yeah, really critical of is like businesses sort of using tips in like a sly way to increase profits. Like I was hearing some story recently where it was like vertical, vir, uh, virtual machines or whatever were like asking people for tips. And <laughs> it's like nudge theory gone wrong, which is like nudge theory is like uh, – choice uh, architecture or whatever. So architecting, like when people make decisions, how is the choice presented and whatnot, you can nudge people in certain directions. And so that one, it's like when you 
ask people for a tip in a situation where they normally should not or would not provide one, and then you like make the default option like 15 or 20%, it's like, well, some people are going to tip just because that's what you made the default. So people will be like, I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. You know, so it's like, oh my oh, God, yeah. that's really frustrating to me. But I understand, yeah, what you're saying. I think tipping is a, yeah, that's great for servers. And service work, that was kind of the point Obama was making in the show. It's like, to his point in the speech is that it's his, not really. I guarantee you his point is different. going to end up being raise the minimum wage because a lot of people rely on this bottom rung. There um, is, yeah, some of that in the show. But I think the point being like, you know, service work is difficult. You know, it's not like, oh, these people, kind of to the point in the speech where he was like, oh, it's not just that people who are really successful worked harder. It's just, you know, all on how amazing they are, like, individually. It's like, yeah, no, like, obviously it depends on what opportunities you have and the kind of natural talent and skills you've been given and, and there's companies that literally have like hiring managers like their whole point is to find talent right and yeah of course you know your work ethic does contribute and you can like i don't think you become successful hardly ever without being a hard worker um of course that does happen sometimes when you're just you know a trust fund baby or something but um but yeah it's not all you and uh i wish i were a trust fund baby <laughs> yeah <laughs> no, I yeah, uh, but it was interesting because you look at these people on the lower rungs of society, and so he goes up the rungs, and right before he gets to the top, he talks about tech workers, and he interviews this one tech worker in particular, and I won't spoil anything, but um, I thought the thing I took away because I was reading young. Here we go, ding ding ding, get out your bingo cards. Your podcast a winner. is starting right now. <laughs> Welcome to the show. No. Oh my God, yeah. Um, it's very early. We're just now waking up, so. Yeah, I was reading Young, and one of the things he said was that as social stability increases, that psychological stability decreases. And social stability being like, you don't have to work for things. You kind of live like a leisurely life, like, uh, you know, as as you might if you were a trust fund baby. Um or if you're a tech worker, and this is the kind of point Obama makes in the show, is like tech workers today, they have different kind of. Problems. Is social stability an individual thing or a, or a societal thing? Because you may say we have social stability. Yeah, no, just on the individual. Like you don't, mm. you have stability. Like you don't have to worry. You know, you don't really have to work too hard. You know, you've got leisure. Um, and Young was saying that that's actually not good for you psychologically. Like there's some optimal deprivation that's good for you psychologically that helps you maintain well-being. And that when you have too much of that leisure, like not having to do anything, not having to work, that that results in psychopathy and psychological, yeah, unwell. Well, this is like the Bud Light thing, you know, like the people that drink Bud Light or the whole Dylan Mulvaney, whatever, you know, it's like, those people, you, look, 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 folks, <laughs> folks, you're, you don't know your customer. Like your customer doesn't give a shit about that. They don't even have, they don't have time to think about that. They're working 13 hours a day on their oil rig hands and on their hands and knees, like a, a, like a mechanic 
works hard I, or a plumber you know, uh, or, yeah a plumber works hard I, any of these kind of not not menial jobs but these jobs that labor people jobs not don't knowledge respect work. Yeah. yes people who do things work hard Fr- people who frame houses build houses pour concrete build you know cut lumber all these things yeah that is you when if you're doing that and you're doing it well and then somebody wants to have a conversation with you about Dylan Mulvaney, Budweiser. Dylan Mulvaney, <laughs> and like in the beer, co- the guy, the beer company you were trying to get some beer from, wants to like have a discussion about something that you're. I mean, you. It's just <laughs> that is such a disconnected, oh leisurely exactly. point of view yeah. to take. You know, like that is you are mentally first unwell. world. <laughs> First world problems at their pinnacle. It's like you're not even worried about selling beer. Like, what are you? You know what I mean? Like, if you want to sell beer to those to the people that are buying your beer, like I could tell you a million th- different, like basically the opposite of what you just did. Like, just just show half naked girls or really dirty, hardworking men. That probably can relate. both. Yeah, D- do both, and then they'll be like, "Yep, that's me. <laughs> I'm getting me some Bud Light." Right. You know, put a, a an attractive woman on the side of the can, not a confused. I know they didn't actually put this person on the can, but they did make a can. I mean, they made it seem like that. That's not. That just freaks people out, you know. Yeah. So and then then the. And the it shows. So whatever it's that wacky. is, it's just like, it's so not, that's really just not most people. Right. Exactly. Most people are something totally different. They're cutting hair. They're being a mechanic. They're being a framer. They're, they're an inspector. They're locating utilities. They're working at Walmart. They're working in a factory. They're working in a warehouse. They're doing things all day long, hard labor, and they just want to make money. Just want to make to a living. support themselves. Yeah. And that's the point I was going to make is, so just looking at the show, like the different strata, I thought the most psychologically unwell person was the tech worker that they interviewed, even though that person was the most materially well off. And Interesting. the people at the bottom. Except for the CEO. Yeah. Right. Well, the CEO, like it seemed a little different, but maybe that person has got some other things going on. Um, Those people have to live in a different world. Yeah. It's fine. I get it. Yeah. But the people kind of at the bottom. Mr. Krabs. Or whatever. Money, 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 money. Yes, exactly. They seemed, um, yeah, much more psychologically well. Like they interviewed some people and they were just talking about their family and and where they came from. And they just, you know, they seem like real, authentic, good people. Like, you know. Imagine the the narrative story that you have to tell yourself as a bottom-rung employee to not kill yourself. Yeah. It will have to be a very fundamental... Literally. And... Understanding of reality. Yeah. Let me you know, just like point... <laughs> yeah, let me just point this out, too, because they were talking about gratitude. Like, this one guy was from the Deep South in Mississippi, and he, you know, grew up, and his mom, uh, his black mom raised white kids, and he went into their house one time looking for his mom, and the white family told him, 
you can't be in here because you're black, even though his mom was raising their kids. And he was like, you know, so that's how it was down here. He's like, but I'm grateful for everything. He's like, I know where I came from. You know, and he's like, and I serve my community. And he was working. So he was black or he was white? His mom was was white. Or his mom was black. He Yeah, they were both black. And I was just. Wait, I'm so confused. He was black. His mom was black. And his mom was raising white kids. You know, she worked in a white home. Additional. Oh, yeah, that was her work. Oh, when she was her like job. a child. Right. Yes. Okay, got you. I thought yeah. she like adopted a bunch of white kids. <laughs> oh, I'm a little confused about what's it happening. Was really weird. <laughs> no, she's raising, okay. you know, some. Uh, she was like a maid or house. She was like the help, whatever. Kind of. Yeah, right. I got you. And uh, but he just expressed a lot of gratitude, you know. And you could think about like, oh, that's a terrible situation, you know. No one should be treated like that. What kind of weird racism is that? Um, oh yeah, that's a story that I haven't told when I live with that black guy. As like a roommate, kind of. He was sort of homeless. He was my neighbor for a while. Maurice. I'm calculating how much of the story to tell. So he he was, let's say, homely. You know, missing teeth, rickety old guy. Real slow talker, you know. Like, he's just that kind of guy, you know. And he worked at the... The deli down the road at Publix or Kroger, one of those places. And uh, he, they did like a bajillion dollar renovation and they needed someone that, in my opinion, didn't look like that guy. Mm. You know, they needed, they probably didn't have to be white, but they needed more teeth, you know. So he's like, I got nowhere Mm. to go. I'm homeless. And I was like, Maurice, for God's sake, you can come live here in my one-bedroom apartment on the couch. And he did for a long time. And uh, Mr. A and Maurice living together. I still together really in, know how to th- in the projects, dude. It was one of the most bizarre experiences of my life because I eventually, I don't know how it happened, but eventually he had to go, and I was like, kind of pushing for that, but I had to move, you know. And I was like, I don't know. What to do, really, Maurice? And I would get irritated sometimes. You know, like... I don't know. I feel bad about it. But whatever. When are you going to get a job, Maurice? (laughs) When are you going to start helping me pay these bills? But I also was like, I don't know what what you're going to do, you know, at this point. I have tried to get him in touch with, like, the EEOC, like, people to, like, sue those motherfuckers. But anyway, he, uh, he was like that. He was very, he worked for, maybe his mother did too. I can't remember. We should get Maurice on one time and have him tell us. Oh my God. Yeah. Bring Maurice on the pod. That would be good. Maybe. Yeah. Let's try it. I'll see if I have his number. But he, um, yeah, he had like worked for some, I can't remember. He would, he could tell us, but like that he had worked for some lady and that was his whole thing about it. He was like, you know, I'm just not racist because. Like he was funny because he's old, so like he could he actually still understands that you can be black and racist. So he was like, "I'm not racist, you know, and you know some people are, and I get it, you know, but I work for these white ladies, and I'd have nothing without them, mm. you know this this old rich white yeah. lady. He he knew he'd always say her name, Miss Montaigne or whatever her name was, and uh, just the way he talked about her was very realistic and understood the disparity but like was like that's i what else did i have you know yeah 
Yeah, that was kind of the point I was making is just like, you could look at that from all these different angles and criticize and whatnot. But at some level, I was just like, this person has gratitude for what's happened to them. And I think gratitude is a very healthy way to approach your life and a signal of someone who has, you know, psychological well-being exhibits a lot of gratitude, I think. And then you contrasted that with like the tech worker who like was working at this startup and then was like, yeah, this other company called and, you know, it just seems like a really good opportunity. And just like, and so I left, you know, it's like displaying zero gratitude for the startup job he had, you know, just like, what is going on? And it just, it was just so clear. And I think that people miss, miss that. And to me, it was just, yeah, watching this series, I was like, these people, you know, with all this gratitude who are just making, you know, struggling to get by, making a living, those are the kind of people I, you know, really look up to, honestly, in some way more so than the people at the higher rungs of society. Yeah, I think there's variability, obviously, within that, with all, all realms of economic status. Of but course, yeah. I think, yeah. I think the types of... I mean, even if you've got like a guy who drinks too much and is a little angry, you know, because of his, you know, probably because he drinks too much and then you got to work in the morning, you know, whatever, who knows how that all gets started. But, you know, in a sense, you could step back and go, yeah, kind of get it, you know, but whereas yeah. like the tech, the, the, the marketing CEO of Anheuser-Busch doing weird trans activism on behalf of a company, which afterwards obviously got fired immediately. But it's just like, you look at those people's problems and complaints, obviously, like complaints about, I don't know, trans something, something confusing that nobody understands, obviously, because we're still having the conversation about it for like the past five years. And it's just like, you what's your excuse? Like, what's wrong with you? Are you struggling? Is there something, the matter, do you not have? And there is a point, a part of me that can understand, I do not have this very well for these people, but I have heard other people express this, so I'll steal their idea on it. That, that like, you could almost feel bad for them too, because there's something wrong, psychologically. Like they're, ha there's, they're like melting down. You know, these like rich liberal types. Oh, yeah. And it's like, like something is wrong with you. You clearly are not content right. or happy because you're, 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 you're just like burning everything in your wake. Yeah. And everybody struggles in some degree. And that's, yeah, kind of what I was thinking. It's like, I think, you know, rich people, people at the top struggle, but it's, they struggle psychologically. And I think partly it's like the fact of like, you've been given much and like much will be asked of you. And that's a huge responsibility psychologically, I think. And it weighs on people a lot. Um, well, how do you give back? I think they don't, they can't fulfill. Right. And so I think feeling. they do that virtue signaling thing like that. People like try to do that because they, it's like trying to assuage your guilt for how much you've been given. And it's, it's just not the proper way to like actually make the best of your privilege, so to speak, or whatever. I, yeah. you know, I think our parents, at least mom and Robert, or should I not say that? Mom and <laughs> Robert, mom and, mom and Bob. Um, I think they, they're well off, 
you know they're middle class i don't know yeah. if they're they're middle upper 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 middle class not yeah. not upper upper middle class but maybe one percenters in a sense that one percent of the world people don't realize how low that actually that bar is you don't have to make that much money to be in the one percent but they make good money they paid off their house a nice house they they're can retired, retire they'll yeah. probably be okay you know that you know they're a place where i will never be and i think they are i think they fluctuate a lot in their theories ideas approaches to things but i think they are really good at like i guess the word what, to go with like the what you were saying like they're pretty decent at recognizing that responsibility that like we have my dad is very different i'll just put it that way my real dad very like can i borrow this or can i get some I, 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 theoretically i don't do this but i'm just saying you know i've i've been in places throughout my life where it's like can i have some money or something what are you going to do for me not a bad approach it's a good balance for me actually i get, get a little both, bit of both yeah. worlds but it's like it's just totally different. Like I, he doesn't, he doesn't approach the responsibility of parenthood in the same way. I don't know which one is better or worse, but one, one is more comforting. That's for sure. To know, conditional, I think is the word I'm looking for. Mm. Are you going to try to help yourself? What are you going to do? Like, can you come up with a plan? And our parents would do that too at a certain point. But they're also, I think, I don't know what it is about them, but they're much they i say our parents the ones that we share are more something like i've got younger siblings like will and ellie and i'm always like what do you got what are you gonna do what's your like i'm like my dad what are your plans for the future <laughs> how are you gonna make a million dollars you're like sitting in your trailer yeah. <laughs> lecturing them about yeah I know, how are you literally. gonna make a million dollars yes donate to the pod and not that things should be handed to you but there's a balance you know yeah well um, there's investment you know and i think traditionally investment in like you know we have outsourced that into some like weird industry but it's like investment used to come from like families to their kids you know it's like you just pass it down you know like your kids why about else to go have a family something. and yeah. a, why else have a family and a lineage and you know like what's the otherwise right right all these things are, are what's important, not which is right. hilarious. Right. Not coming your from family some of the people that they come and, from. And yeah, your relationships. And that was the thing I was gonna say. It is lonely at the top, kind of like you were saying, these people you can almost feel bad for them because I think you sacrifice a lot to get there. And those sacrifices I think are a little invisible to us sometimes, but I mean it really is worth considering. And I think as people climb to the top, some people realize this is that, oh, if you really want to make a million dollars or half a million a year, you're not going to have any time for friends and family and, like, you know, cultivating things that you're interested in and whatnot. It's like everything is going to have to be dedicated to this corporate entity. It does seem – Yeah. It seems like it would be really stressful to have, like, $500 million and then spend every moment of your waking life figuring out how to make even more money. <laughs> You know, like that sounds really fun, vapid. Like, <laughs> it's, it sounds horrible, to yeah. be honest. Like I would not want to be, I, I don't see how anyone chooses that. Like people, I th there's, 
it makes you think there's like something wrong with those that's people. what i'm like saying the jeff, the jeff bezos, bezos, bezos of the world it's like what's at the extreme, what are you doing what is going on i don't respect these people i yeah i listen to this podcast all in and Man, some of the things these people are uber rich, like tech entrepreneurs, the all in people. Yeah, it's a podcast, and uh, there's by like, by rich people, like the hosts are like rich. Yeah, tech people they're or rich something. tech oh, entrepreneurs, okay. and I like some more than others. There's four of them on the show, but just some of the things they say, I'm like, you guys are so out of touch and seemingly like interested <laughs> in the most vapid shit. Like, you know, it's like one of them is like obsessed. Why do with you wine. listen to them? They talk about business and political issues, and I think they give it a good, like, conservative, like, what would actually be practical. Because partly they are business people, and so, like, I think a lot of them, they have worked hard, and they understand what's going to work and what's not going to work. And so some of these idiot My policies that are favorite thing about rich people yeah. is how conservative they are in reality and how liberal <laughs> they pretend to be. It's yes. Like... Wow. So I appreciate that perspective where they're like, this is idiotic, you know, this policy or whatever. Like they've criticized the Russia-Ukraine war like a million times. And they're like, this is so dumb. Like at least one of them has because he's more conservative. But what's it called? All in. It's like poker reference. I'll listen to it. But um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, But one of them like, oh, my God, he really grinds my gears because he just says like, Oh, like he brags about how rich he is sometimes and like will say little things. And I'm so like, cool. shut up. Like, no one cares but you. Like, this is so gross. God. Yeah. Anyway, people like That's that. That's interesting. Anyway. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with those folks. Pray for them. Pray for rich people. <laughs> pray, pray, pray for the rich. <laughs> they need it. They do, honestly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the way out of that is because it does feel like we're coming to a crescendo of sorts, especially during the 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 it almost seemed manufactured. It was so ironic, but like the crisis, the financial crisis we were coming into at the same time, all these billionaires are like, "Look at my dildo that I'm shooting into outer space! Yay for me!" You know, like wearing your cowboy hat and shooting rockets off it's like um what are you doing i'm sorry i i was busy working confused. um <laughs> you're telling yeah, me there's you're... space trash flying around the planet now yes and i think oh a week God. ago you were talking about how much you're doing for the plight of the underprivileged underprivileged uh i don't know yeah that's fine but uh and I, we should, t- I know we got to close now, but yeah, I got to go. I do think it, it'd be cool to get to the bottom of that. What Obama was pointing out, I'll give him this. I think about that too. I think it's very interesting that you have the majority of people working for at the kind of bottom. I mean, think of how many restaurants and servers and all, you know, uh, right. Different, different things. And some of them do make good money. You wouldn't expect, you know, like trash collectors like some of those guys are paid enough but i don't know you know how you continue down those roads and ever actually retire like what happens like do you just die on the job like i you know i i don't know it seems odd and i'm not like a raise minimum wage kind of guy because i understand that that doesn't work you can't right it works for for a minute but then everybody goes out of business 
the wage price because spiral the, kicks off and you experience massive just inflation going out and of control. everybody's as worse off as or as you know as well or not well off as they were before the problem really ultimately probably i'm guessing is that the money is becoming worthless like the inflation or whatever is causing that to happen is the problem like nothing costs a nickel hmm. you know yeah yeah and we're we're things used to so i don't know anyway well we'll come back there's lots to explore there oh, oh.